Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. Today, Hector and I talk about Silk Road, the black market website I took down in 2013. Silk Road is back in the news as the IRS just recently caught the man who stole 50,000 Bitcoin from the site. We plan to do another full episode on the original Silk Road story, but for now, we're going to cover this arrest and the Bitcoin hack. And finally, we respond to a listener question on how do we increase your security beyond what's provided by banks and other organizations we rely on in daily life. Hector Monsegar was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hacker turned FBI informant. Participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed, the weekly podcast to talk about cybersecurity issues, uh, fun hacks uh, from the past, FBI issues, black hat issues, all the great stuff that's going on in cybersecurity news. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent who worked his entire career in cybersecurity and now a founding member at Naxo. I'm joined, as always, each week by Hector Monsiger, former black hat hacker, who once faced up to 125 years in prison for the number of systems that he had the skill set to hack into. Now a red teamer, research, and cybersecurity expert, also friend and podcast host. Hector, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. How about yourself, my friend? Good, good. Did you have a good week? Oh, it was extremely busy. Yeah. That's good. Cybersecurity is a, is a busy time. So today's episode, we're going to get into Silk Road, the online black market website that I was the case agent on and I helped take down. We're going to talk about uh, the U.S. government had just seized 50,000 Bitcoins that was taken from them prior to the government's takedown. Uh, we'll go through some of that. We have a, a question from a listener. Uh, again, reach out to questions at hackerinthefed.com if you want to ask us a question. So you ready to get in, into this? Oh, yeah, man. Let's nerd it up. We said we were going to talk about Silk Road and the feds issued this week that uh, they seized 50,000 Bitcoins stolen from Silk Road before the arrest of Ross Ulbricht. And so just to give our audience a little bit of insight. So I was the case agent on Silk Road. I arrested Ross Ulbricht uh, in San Francisco back in, was it 2013, October of 2013. After an intensive two-year investigation, the FBI arrested Ross William Ulbricht. The website itself was a sophisticated endeavor that proved tough to crack. It used the online currency bitcoins and operated in the so-called deep web. Silk Road was a black market website. We've said that they had about $1.2 billion in sales. The only thing you couldn't buy on Silk Road, I mean, it really was the, uh, an eBay of, of anything. The two things you couldn't buy were guns and fake college degrees. Anything else, your mind goes wild, you could buy on Silk Road. Uh, and it operated through Bitcoins. So you kind of it protected your anonymity through Tor, uh, couldn't find your IPs, and it also payment through Bitcoin. Basically a big drug website. Um, lots of drugs were sold there. But it looks like that someone somehow tricked Silk Road to give up 50,000 Bitcoins back in the day. Did you read about it? Oh, yeah. I read about it. I think the story was amazing. I, the fact that the, the IRS and, and it, its uh, you know its affiliates, you know, they were able to identify and track down this major compromise. It is a major compromise. Now, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure and I would love to get your perspective later on. Let's kind of go to the story first. 
But uh, I would love to know what your perspective is as to the end result. What's the consequence for the guy that stole the Bitcoin? That's one. Uh, do these Bitcoin belong to Ross Orbrick or Orbrick? Can he sue for that? You know, I have stupid questions and I would like the stupid questions answered. <laughs> so ask me the questions one at a time and I will answer them. Okay, okay. Again, not a lawyer, not involved in this case, but have a lot of historical knowledge in the case. Awesome. Okay. So the hack occurred prior to, you know, Ross Ulbricht getting arrested. Correct. Okay. So those coins belong to who? Ross or the Department of Justice? The U.S. government. So due to a seizure order issued uh, since the since this, and Ross forfeited all of the Bitcoins through a seizure order after his arrest when convicted of the crimes, that they were proceeds of a criminal organization. Um, mm-hmm. And so these 50,000 Bitcoins would be part of that, if not stolen prior to Ross's arrest. Gotcha. So at that point, uh, once he was convicted and once is uh, once the funds from from his operations uh, were seized on paper. Right. Then well, we, see, be- we seized him when we arrested him. So we seized one hundred and seventy seven thousand bitcoins. So this is wow. fifty thousand bitcoins at the time of his arrest. We seized seven hundred seventy seven thousand. So that was twenty nine thousand from the Silk Road server and the mm-hmm. balance of from Ross's computer. OK, well, it's, it's, it's insane. But. To clarify for the audience, because, you know, I, at this point, I'm the audience, right? Mm-hmm. My my curious take on this, or my curiosity on this, rather, is, okay, so it belongs to uh, Silk Road at some point. Um, Silk Road was taken down. Ross was arrested. He was convicted. That there, were, uh, there was a process in place that basically said that any coins as a result of criminal activity on that exchange now belongs to the U.S. government, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that process was put in place when this guy was arrested this week. Go okay, okay. There, there was another seizure order that goes back and says, you know, that these coins would be a part of, you know, and I'm probably missing up the legal stuff here. These coins would have been a part of Silk Road. Um, they're illegally got by by the person they were stolen from. Um, so by you know by law they belong to the U.S. government as that original seizure. Wow, you know, and and I, I just kind of look into the story, looking at what the um, the IRS and the, I would say the agency put out, also what came out in the affidavits and so on. It seems like he was a long term holder on these bitcoins. He was waiting for some sort of uh, w- what's the word when when you do a crime and there's a period of time where after a while it no longer becomes a crime, or rather it kind of expires. Well, it's still a crime. I think you're looking for statute of limitations. Yeah, yeah, statute of limitations. Absolutely, yeah. So it seems like he was waiting for a statute of limitations to run out. Is there a statute of limitations in this kind of case? So there's statute of limitations in every case that doesn't involve murder or extreme violence to people. Um, and statute of limitations is just a limitation where the government can't just hold something over your head for years and years and years and years. Um, so that's sort of the, the logic behind it. I think this one, and I'm just guessing from what I've read, is that so he steals 50,000 Bitcoins from Silk Road. That happens in 2012. In 2017, there's what's called a fork. So a different idea about Bitcoins came up. Um, and so in order to go with this new idea, this new way of doing things, a fork in the blockchain happens. That means there's two new blockchains come August 2017. One of them's Bitcoin, and the, other, the new idea is Bitcoin Cash. So if you have 50,000 Bitcoins from 2012, 
the day this forks, and now you have two different blockchains, you now have 50,000 Bitcoins on the, new, on the, the chain and 50,000 uh, Bitcoin cash on the other. Uh, same addresses, two different blockchains. I know it's kind of confusing, but it's, uh, uh, you know, the ledger splits and your money is still on both ledgers at that split. So then in 2017, it looks like he took that Bitcoin cash, the, the 50,000 Bitcoin cash, and converted it over to Bitcoin um, and sent that money to his wallet somewhere or a wallet he controlled. Um, but in doing that, he committed wire fraud. Um, and that is within the statute of limitations um, of the last five years. Um, so I think that's where he's being charged is where he took cryptocurrency that he legally obtained. And again, this is just from what I'm reading from the affidavit. So we're well past that 2012, the statute of limitations on that crime. But then when he converted in 2017, the Bitcoin cash into Bitcoin, he, he, he furthered his fraud uh, and committed wire fraud, which is uh, can be up to 20 years in prison on each count of wire fraud. Wow. So. Ouch. Does that mean then that had he ignored the Bitcoin cash fork and not transferred the Bitcoin cash and tried to sell it or whatever? Would that mean that he would have avoided prosecution then from the original hack? Possibly. Again, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but I believe statute of limitations would have run out on that that wow. original that original hack. Yeah, if he just would have let things sit there. But I also am not really sure how they found his identity. Um, maybe that yeah. movement is what he went through an exchange where they had KYC or, or know your customer. Um, so he moved it into an account that kind of knew his name. Uh, but for everything I read... Um, the original 50,000 Bitcoins were still sitting on drives that were found in his house. You know, um, they're talking about a popcorn tin. Um, it sounds like it was on some sort of memory or some sort of uh, raspberry Pi or something that was in a under popcorn, the floorboards. Yeah, under the floorboards or in a popcorn tin in mm -hmm. his closet or something like that. So, you know, there's some uh, salacial uh, details about the case that are there are are kind of cool, but. You know, I will say, let me say this. So the the it came out that it said at time of seizure, it's $3.4 billion. And that math probably works out. Um, now, if you did the math on 50,000 or 53,000 Bitcoin, it's somewhere around 900 million. Um, there were other agents involved in our original takedown of Silk Road. And, um, you know, they were kind of upset that this was considered the largest seizure of Bitcoin. And it all just because of the math, just working on it. So this is 50,000. I don't have a point of view. This is just the facts. This guy took 50,000 Bitcoins. The prosecutors were able, after the conversion and all that, was able to pull back 53,000 Bitcoin uh, into the government. And, you know, again, we seized 177,000 Bitcoin. I, I don't have a point of view of I don't I don't need the largest crypto seizure or anything like that. Uh, but just put the facts out there that, you know, this 50,000 or 53,000 is less than the 177,000 we did originally. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the good thing about you, right? <laughs> the good thing about you is that, you know, you when, when you did that job, you were a professional about it. You didn't have your ego attached to it. So I um, I, I, I think it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. 50,000 or 177 the reality is that this was a criminal enterprise and, uh, you know, and, and, and it had to be taken down. I mean, it is what it is. And I, oh, was, that's just, my, that's my I was just part of a team, too. It was I didn't. This wasn't all just me. 
Well, uh, I'm not sure if you, if you noticed, so you may have missed it, but I, I had my, my second controversial take of this podcast episode. So don't worry, Chris, I got you. I'll, I'll take all the bullets this time. <laughs> so Hector, you read the press release by DOJ. Uh, what did you pull out of it on how you think this guy stole 50,000 Bitcoins? Yeah, so I, I, I kind of read the, the affidavits, the affidavits, the releases, um, and then, of course, um, just, you know, kind of looking at what was available to me at, at the time. Um, it, it almost seems like every day there's new information coming out of that case. Uh, but here's what I think has happened. Um, you know, for those of you that are, are, are bit tech savvy or even in cybersecurity, uh, you may remember back when you started studying uh, and learning about cybersecurity issues or vulnerabilities, you may have heard about race conditions. Uh, and, you know, if you didn't hear about race condition as a concept, you also may know of it as uh, a time of check to time of use vulnerabilities. This is very old school. It's a very old concept. It's been around since like the late 70s, early 80s uh, of Unix uh, and computing. Uh, the whole concept of a race condition is, well, let's go back to what an application does, okay, before we get to a race condition. So an application, as is right now, if you, if you decide to, to kind of develop a, a quick uh, application that, that, or a simple application that kind of just reads a file or accesses a file, uh, or even queries a database, uh, the way it works is you set this logic where uh, you may have a function, and that function will either try to access a file, or it will try to do a database query. Uh, and it does it in a way where you know if 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 the logic is flawed or you do not have mechanisms in place uh, to remediate a race condition, then what happens is if an attacker is able to execute uh, a similar function at the same time to do the same uh, conditions or run the same conditions, then theoretically the attacker would be able to interfere and or take advantage of the logic flaw in the application. I'll give you an example. I'll give you a real-world example, okay? So imagine this. Imagine you're going to New York City. Uh, you have a MetroCard. Um, you go to the subways. And you use, a, you use the MetroCard to, like, swipe in so you can actually cross the, uh, you know, the, how do you call that? Turnstile. Yeah, there you go. So, um, so you use the MetroCard to swipe your way in, into, the, uh, into the subway by crossing the turnstile. Without the MetroCard, the turnstile is not going to allow you to do that. That's the whole point. Now, imagine a scenario where you swipe your MetroCard, and as you're crossing the turnstile, someone walks up extremely close behind you, right, to the point where you both fit through the turnstile, and now you have two, two people walking through for the price of one, right? Mm. Um, that's the best way I can try to visualize it for the audience, um, and that's exactly what happened here where this guy was able to identify that, one, um, if you're able to send, uh, you know, let's say a, a Bitcoin into uh, Silk Road uh, and very quickly transfer a large number out, you're able to take advantage of the race condition. And that's that. Well, I, th I think it's, it's more of a one-to-one -one ratio, ratio. From what I read, he put 500 in and then requested 500 come out. But that request he did five times within one second. 
And so exactly. the, the 500 comes out, he puts 500 in 500 comes out. And then before it can update the system to say that he has account has zero, he asks it for 500 again. And it says it checks. Oh, it does have 500. So, okay. Sends it mm -hmm. out. Oh, it does it again. And he was able to repeat that a number of times uh, until he got yeah. you know, 50,000 Bitcoin. So, so this sounds like a, uh, some sort of coding problem within the, within Silk Road, or is it more of an application problem? Well, let, let's go back. Let's go back. Well, it, so to answer your question, yes, it is, it is a problem with logic okay. and it's problem with the way the function was coded. So if we go back to my visualization and, and kind of using uh, the conditions that you laid out. So if we go back to the turnstile and we swipe the metric card, instead of one person behind you, now it's five people behind you. Five people fit with you um, during the the, the that, that turnstile turn. So now you have six people going through that turnstile. To um, me, with your example, the, the the logic is that you didn't design the turnstile good enough to not fit six people in it. Yeah, well, you, you, you went beyond the scope of the turnstile. The turnstile, it knows that once a metro card, is, it, it passes through, that means that the person has purchased uh, a turn. Now, if you fit in five or six people into that turn, then you go beyond the scope of the turnstile. The turnstile only knows how to run the function. Mm. Uh, now, if you if you abuse that function, there's no mitigations in place to deal with that. For example, so let's say we go back to the turnstile visualization, but now the turnstile identifies if there's more than one person trying to cross. Now, that's a remediation. Now, that's an improvement in the logic of the function of the turnstile. The same applies here with this code. The code did not have checks to identify whether or not a race condition is taking place, and it did not securely or safely or do its due diligence when it did the transfer out of the uh, of the Silk Road uh, uh, wallet. Uh, so yeah, so it's definitely problematic. It, it, it works in theory for sure. We were talking before the show, and you said that you know based on timing, this is two thousand. 12 this happened uh this also could look like maybe what happened with again we have no idea we weren't there we weren't inside we've never investigated but could have happened at the mount gox the the crypto exchange quote-unquote hack that happened back in the day absolutely so you know the thing that the thing about mount gox is that it was an even bigger compromise or loss of bitcoin assets than silk road we're talking about like eight hundred thousand bitcoin some ridiculous number i forgot the exact number but the the point is is that someone at that time frame, same time frame, engaged and executed the, almost a similar attack, where they were sending Bitcoin into Mt. Gox, and then they were pulling out more than they put in. Uh, they were definitely taking advantage of a similar attack or even the same uh, set of conditions. Um, and this goes again; it goes back to you know issues with logic in your programming in, in your code rather. Um, now, the thing with Mt. Gox, here's, here's why we cannot definitively say that what happened to Mt. Gox was a race condition issue is because, you know, we never got a full debrief on what happened. A lot of information came out. The guy that used to run in Magical Tux or whatever he goes by, <laughs> he's he, he has released some information over the years. He's done interviews, right? Uh, but for the most part, we can't we cannot say exactly if this was the, the attack vector. But, but... Let's look at the, the history of it. Both of these attacks happened around the same time, and they, they ended up with the same result, which is someone pu pulled out more than they put in.
Hector, good lead into our listener question. Again, if you have a question for Hacker and the Fed, email us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Joanne from New York City wrote in, we all blithely use financial apps on our phones like Citibank and Schwab. We also pay apps like Venmo and PayPal, which with facial recognition or possibly login passwords. In some cases, two-factor identification by text or mobile. The question is, what are the cybersecurity risks associated with those apps and what's the best way to protect against getting hacked and someone wiping out our accounts? It is a great question because, you know, one of the things that that any security practitioner will, will, will tell you in terms of kind of mitigating attacks is you've got to make sure that you have MFA, multi-factor authentication. You have to have uh, biometrics or facial recognition or strong passwords. And these are all uh, great tools, okay? So what happens in the event that you, you've you implemented every single uh, mitigation that we've offered? Is there still a risk? And the answer is yes. If you're using a phone that is compromised or a device that is compromised, all of those security features and tools become you know academic at best because now the attacker has direct access to your accounts. All they have to do is sit there and wait for you to authenticate, okay? This is why it's extremely important to make sure that your devices, your endpoints, and your mobile phones are always updated. What do you mean by compromise? Like uh, you clicked on a phishing link and now you have malware? That or we had a, we had an episode recently where we discussed zero-click exploits, right? Yep. I mean, the, the reality is if you've gotten to that point where you've been compromised, then yeah, you know, you still you still face the risk of, of having your your funds stolen or personal information stolen. Well, we you know we did talk about zero click and we talked about how it was you know five million dollars to get. So I mean, let's go beyond that risk. And and you know, to me, it's it's one choosing a bank that that offers the right security features. You know, you, you I don't think I would ever allow someone to use a bank that didn't have a, a two factor or multi factor authentication. Um, so choose the right apps that are right for you. Um, you know, if you're at a bank and you're not happy with their security, move. Um, you know, if they're not securing your your identification, your information, your money, don't use them. There's no reason to do it. Um, the apps, there's a lot of choices out there now, um, you know, between Venmo, PayPal, Cash App. There's a lot of different ways to send money. Use crypto if you want to send money. I don't know. After listening to this episode, you'll want to use uh, crypto, but it's a possibility. It's something you want to do. Um, but again, your cybersecurity and using these applications are only as good as those applications are to offer to you. Um, and then take the extra steps, like Hector said, knowing if your phone's been um, maliciously taken over. If you clicked on a link, make sure your software is up to date. Use networks that you know are secure. Maybe don't go into a hotel uh, and get on their network and use their Wi-Fi uh, in order to check your bank account or log into your bank account. Um, those a lot of times are unsecured networks. You don't really know what endpoints you're connecting to. Um, you know, the Wi-Fi may say, you know, XYZ hotel, you know, Wi-Fi, but it could be a guy running a, a, a fake endpoint in the in the room next door to you, just waiting for you to log on. You know, take a little bit more security conscious decisions when, when you're logging into your accounts. Mm -hmm. Well, th this is where I like the concept of zero trust, Chris. Uh, I like the, I like the concept of zero trust because it, it makes the assumption or it helps you reach the assumption that everything that you're using is compromised already. So because you've assumed or you assume that your device is already compromised, now you have to move in a certain way to mitigate the, the, the worst case of loss or potential of loss. Uh, so what does that mean? 
Well, here's what it means in this in this in regards to this question. Um, if you have strong passwords, if you have biometrics or fingerprints enabled, you have multi-factor authentication enabled, and you're you're with a you're with a bank that has a you know a, a, it's hard to say this, but you know a proven tra- a proven track record with their uh, security updates and so on in their apps. Okay, uh, which which you know it's never it's not the best indicator, but it's something. Now with all of these things in place, you still have all of that in place. Now, if you still assume that you're compromised, then in terms of mitigating, you know, a potential uh, loss, the one thing you want to do is you want to set other conditions in place uh, that's going to also help you. A good example would be secondary passwords, right? If if someone wants to try to do like a SIM swap where they try to take over your, your SIM or your phone number, um, what you can do to mitigate that is call into your cell phone provider and set a secondary password so that if anybody anywhere tries to... Uh, hijack your phone number or do anything or any, any modifications to your account, they would require that secondary password. And that secondary password will be something so personal to you that only you and this, uh, you know, this provider would know. That's a great point. You know, also set up trip lines, uh, you know, set up uh, where you get a text or an email or, or it goes to, you know, uh, your significant others or someone you trust, um, some sort of alert if uh, a username or a password or anything's changed on one of your accounts. Set up, you know, I have trip lines that, that set up anything over a penny is spent on one of my credit cards or moves out of my bank account. I get a text. Yeah, it can get annoying, but it's also good. I, I, if I do get hit by some sort of attacker, you know, they're just going to get that one hit. And hopefully that one hit's protected because uh, if it's not me or someone in my family, you know, I'm going to immediately get on the on the call with the bank and and stop whatever account is bleeding. It's, it's these extra steps. Uh, you know, it, it's shitty that we live in a world that you have to have that sort of thing uh, and you have to be on top of it. But, you know, if you're not the, your best security guard, uh, you know, nobody else is going to be there. Nobody else is going to be looking at your stuff and know what's going on and protect you like you. That is such a great point. And, and big shout out to Joanne. Thank you for that question. It's actually a very good question. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that the audience, uh, you know, send us more great questions coming in. Uh, send your questions at questions at hackerinthefed.com. Again, another great episode of Hacker in the Fed. Uh, new episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, I enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah, it was great. We got to nerd out and uh, hopefully share some good knowledge with the audience. Cheers. Cheers, Hector. Talk to you later. <laughs>